0: I also want to... One more prayer request. Um, Brother Rick Widener is going to be having shoulder surgery Tuesday. Is that right? Tuesday the 8th. Would you pray for him? A rotator cuff? Some of you can commiserate with Brother Rick. Uh, you have been there on that surgery, and you know the recovery it takes. And so let's pray not only for successful surgeries for these folks this week, but also for a complete recovery from them as well. And so we're glad to... Uh, uh, glad to be able to pray for one another, and I, um, as your pastor, I'm thankful to be part of a church that prays for each other. Um, we we do have a praying church, and I'm I'm thankful for thankful for that. It's good to see Virginia here today. We've been praying for her. It's good to have Brother Frank Brown back in our services following his surgery, and um, keep up keep up praying for people. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ are encouraged by your prayers. Find would you number. 16, chapter 16 in the book of Revelation, you know that this book, primarily it's a book of judgment that was written to the first century believers. They were undergoing a, a terrible persecution from the Roman Empire. The, their persecution of Christians in that first century was rather inhumane. And you can do your homework and find out the, the absolute torture especially that they put Christians through, this book was given to them to let them know that God was working out a plan that would eventually involve the judgment of all of those who oppose him. They weren't really opposing the Christians in the first century. The fact is they were opposing the message of those Christians, and that was that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. So they were opposing God, and while there are chapters in this book that do reveal rejoicing, and and we love, don't we, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, fantastic chapters of what is going on in heaven and what will go on in heaven. Primarily, though, this book is a chronicle of God's final judgment of sin and sinners and ultimately Satan himself. I'm going to look today at the commencing of the bold judgments, and Lord willing, next Sunday morning, the concluding of the bold judgments. Today, the commencing of the bold judgments. You know, you've been, you've been studying this book with us, and you've studied the book before. You know that there are three series of judgments that are executed in this book, and each of those three series have seven parts. First, we looked at the seal judgments or the scroll judgments, and then we looked at the trumpet judgments, and today we look at the bowl judgments. The King James Bible calls them vials, the vial judgments. It says, look, and I, I saw these seven angels, and were, and were given to them seven vials, and those vials were full of, the Bible says, the wrath of God. So we went from the the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments to the bowl judgments. And as you progress through these 21 individual judgments, you'll notice that the intensity and the severity increases. Well, today we start that third and final series. And these are terrible, these are terrible judgments. Chapter 15, verse number 7 says that these bowls are full of the wrath of God. As terrible as the Great Tribulation has been up to this point, these seven judgments that we are going to look at today and, Lord willing, next Sunday are by far the worst judgments that are coming onto the planet. And we'll mark this again that this is pre-written history. These things are going to happen on the planet. Some people say, well, I just don't believe them. That doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, really, what you and I believe believe as far as trying to change whether or not it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Whether or not I believe it's going to, that's beside the point. What does matter what I believe is if I receive and accept the truth of the word of God on everything it talks about, especially about Jesus Christ. We've talked recently, we've compared recently the judgment of God, uh, and I don't remember who who first uh, drew the analogy? But we've talked about the judgment of God being like the waters beating behind a dam, just waiting to burst. And someone said that the uh, someone said that eventually the dam of God's grace and mercy is going to burst, and the floodwaters of His judgment are going to burst forth. That's going to happen. That's what it's talking. That's what it's talking about here. Those waters have been building behind that dam since Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve first chose to rebel against God. And God's judgment has been building. The case against mankind for his sin and his his rebellion against God, it has been building for thousands of years. and it, And the evidence has been accumulating, if you want to look at it like that. We have now 6,000-some years of human history to look back and see where man has chosen again and again and again to rebel against and to reject God and his truth. And that has been building behind that dam of mercy and that dam of grace. God up to this point has been faithful to, to honor Habakkuk's request. In Habakkuk 3.2, the prophet said this, In wrath, remember mercy. And God has done that now for, well, since the Garden of Eden he's been remembering mercy but in the judgments of the revelation that that dam is going to burst and that the floodwaters of his judgment are going to pour down and this Christ rejecting world is ultimately going to be defeated and swept away under the omnipotent judgment of god so these are not these are not joyous chapters that we're in i was talking to somebody in our church this last week These are not joyous chapters to keep coming back to. But God in his truth and his desire for us to know the truth has put this down so we know what's coming. As unsaved people, we can read the future and turn to Christ, the only hope. As Christians, we read these chapters and hopefully they motivate us and they push us to tell people about Jesus Christ. Let's look at, this morning, Revelation chapter 16, verse number 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying unto the seven angels, Go your ways, and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome, a, a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus." For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. Let's stop our reading right there. And what I'd like to do today is get through these four first judgments of the bold judgments or the vile judgments. Next Sunday, we'll conclude by looking at judgments six, seven, and eight. Or you can call them judgments or as the Bible calls them, you can you can call them plagues. God sent plagues i'd like to preach to you this morning, commencing the bold judgments and consider what these four things are and again, if you're here this morning and you don't know for certain that you you're going to heaven when you die. Dr. Manley taught this in Sunday school day and other teachers throughout this building you're going to die. you are going to face God one day if you are if you are unclear as to whether or not you're going to heaven when you die. This message is absolutely for you. And thank God you came today to hear what God says so you can avoid it. If you're a believer here today and you're, you're joining us looking in these verses, you're not going to be, thank the Lord, you're not going to be here for these judgments on this planet. But you do know what's coming. And God help you if you don't tell other people how to miss this. God help me if I don't tell people how to miss this so let's ask god to help our understanding today and then we'll get into this then we'll get into this brief outline okay lord we thank you for this day we thank you for the opportunity to gather together like this you've brought everyone here that you intended to be here today and we pray that your holy spirit would now be our guide into all truth we look at some of these scriptures lord that are in your word and they are fantastic in our minds and i know there are people who like to symbolize these things, and they try to say that, well, this stands for something else, but Lord, it looks like you're just going to unleash unimaginable judgment and wrath on this planet, and if these things are literal, and I believe they are, then Lord, would you help us to do everything we can do as Christians today to get the word out that a Savior came to deliver people from the wrath of God? I pray that you would help our minds today, I know we, we bring a lot of things into church on Sunday mornings that could distract us. And those that may be distracted by things going on in their lives or at their work, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be distracted this morning. Help us to be attentive to your Holy Spirit. And we pray that he would help us to understand these things and then not just learn them, but Lord, know what to do with them. How do we turn this into... Uh, things that change the way we live and we conduct our lives. Thank you again for drawing us together today, for the good songs we're able to sing together, for worship that we can offer you, and we look forward one day, God, to being able to worship you perfectly, with perfect hearts. Until that day comes, help us to practice doing that while we're here. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's start by looking at each of these plagues, um, and we'll start with this first one in verse number two. And we're calling this the plagues in the center, plagues in the center. When this first bowl is is poured out, the, the Bible says that uh, these angels are told to pour out these vials upon the earth. All those who have worshiped the beast, all of those who have received the mark of the beast are afflicted with what the Bible says is a sore in their bodies. Now there's there's debate as to whether or not, is this person covered with sores like Job was? You remember the Bible says Job was covered by top of his head to the sole of his foot with sore boils. Is he covered like that or is this one infected gangrenous sore? Well, I don't know if there's a lot of sores. It's just interesting to me that the Bible says that a grievous sore came upon the men. So I think it just may be one terrible wound in their body. That word sore is the same word you and I would use for ulcer. It describes something that's oozing infection. Maybe gangrene is set in. It's a terrible, uh, it's a terrible thing that they have. In fact, two adjectives are in your Bible. It says noisome and grievous. Those words mean that, that these are, number one, they're very painful. These sores are going to be very painful. But number two, there's no relief. I'm sure there will be the best and the brightest medical minds in the world working under the auspice of the Antichrist, and they're going to try to find some way to relieve the suffering of this sore that has hit millions and millions, if not billions, of people still left on the planet. But they're not going to be able to find any relief. And the reason is because this is a divine judgment on their bodies. They're not going to be able, with their uh, finite minds, be able to come up with something That God has sent as judgment from an infinite mind. And this is the the thing to remember. The sore on the outside of their bodies is only going to be a sign of the rottenness of their hearts. Look what it says in verse 2. The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast. And upon them which worshipped his image. They have completely... Fully rejected Christ. These who have taken the mark of the beast cannot be saved. They will not later become tribulation saints. They have received the mark of the beast. And now they're going to be judged. In these seven judgments, they're going to be terribly judged. There's not a cream or a salve or a drug out there that's going to relieve this suffering. They have rejected God. They have rejected his Christ. And now they're facing his judgment. That first bowl gets poured out, and everyone who has bowed to the image and accepted the mark of the beast have this ulcer in them now. It sounds a lot like uh, one of the plagues back in the book of Exodus, doesn't it? You remember the Bible says the boils came upon all the Egyptians. Remember those ten plagues that God used to motivate Pharaoh? But Pharaoh must have had a hard heart. Uh, Some of you or me, we may have a hard heart, but Pharaoh may take the cake on that one. Those, te- those plagues were terrible. But one of them was boils there in Exodus chapter number 9. But you know what was interesting in Exodus 9 is the same thing here. The people of God aren't touched by them. There are going to be a lot of people on the planet that don't suffer this. Those tribulation saints that have not yet been martyred. They're not going to suffer from this boil. They're protected just like the children of Israel were back in the book of Exodus. So the first plague that shows up is the plagues that, this plague in the sinner. Those who have rejected God and it's a sore, some type of sore that's terribly painful. You may have had uh, you may have had a, a boil or something. You ever had a boil show up on your body somewhere? They're painful. This is this is way beyond that. No relief from this. Then not only plagues in the sinner but verse 3 talks about now there's plagues in the sea. Plagues in the sea, it says, verse number three, the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. There's uh, there's uh, a reference back in chapter eight where one-third of the oceans uh, were affected. Do you remember that? They became poisonous. A third of the oceans back in chapter eight became affected uh, when that whatever wormwood is, when it comes into the, when it hits the sea, the Bible says a third of the oceans are impacted by this. But this is not that. This is every ocean in the world, every saltwater sea in the world. This is global impact here. And did you catch what it said at the end of verse number three? Every creature in the sea is going to die. Would you? I, I really think you ought to think through the scriptures. I, I really do. Would you just stop and think? Have you ever come up on a lake, a section of a lake, or maybe a section of an ocean where a bunch of fish died? There is nothing you can do to help that smell. You can jam all the Vicks up your nose you want to. That is the most permeating odor. Now I want you to. Mem- I, I want you to try to imagine, because that's all you and I can do try to imagine every creature in the sea every blue whale every whale shark every octopus every living creature in the sea dies because the oceans have turned to blood let your just let your mind think on that for a while Imagine the island nations. They're cut off. Imagine what their beaches are going to look like. We like to go to Perdido Key. Imagine what Destin Beach is going to look like, or Hilton Head, or Myrtle. With every creature in the sea dead. The sea's still churning, they're still throwing things up on the shore. This angel shows up and destroys the oceans, billions and billions and billions of sea creatures. In his book, Exploring Revelation, John Phillips talks about this. Do you remember, you remember the term red tide? Uh, this happens periodically, occasionally, and, and, and kind of sporadically around the world. But John Phillips describes a red tide, which is minuscule compared to what's going to happen here, but this is how he describes it. From time to time off the coast of California or elsewhere, a phenomenon known as the red tide occurs. These red tides kill millions of fish and poison those who eat the contaminated shellfish. In 1949, one of these red tides hit the coast of Florida. First, the water turned yellow, but by midsummer, it was thick and viscous, with countless billions of dinoflagellates, tiny one-celled organisms. Sixty-mile windows of stinking fish fouled the beaches. Much marine life was wiped out. Even bait used by fishermen died on the hooks. Eventually, the red tide subsided, only to appear again the following year. Eating fish contaminated by the tide produced severe symptoms caused by a potent nerve poison, a few grams of which, distributed rightly, could easily kill everyone in the world. An unchecked population explosion of toxic dinoflagellates would kill all the fish in the sea. Revelation 16 is not talking about a red tide in California or in Florida. uh, Revelation 16 is talking about a worldwide catastrophe. I want you to remember that 70% of the earth's surface is covered with water. This is going to be unimaginable. But try this morning, try to imagine the impact this is going to have. Now, do you have it in your mind yet? I mean, as best as you and I can with our little pea brains, do you have it in your mind yet that the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Indian and the Arctic Oceans, all of them are blood. So how does that impact the world? Well, first of all, economically. Most rainwater the earth receives comes from the waters evaporating from the oceans. If there's no longer water to evaporate, the result of that is going to be a worldwide drought. Environmentally, that's what happens. Physically, physically much of the world is largely dependent on the oceans for their food supply billions receive much of their daily food supply from the ocean and transported by the ocean the result is going to be when the oceans turn to blood the the result's going to be massive starvation not only environmentally or physically but economically I don't know a whole lot about big ships. You know those great big freighters that hauled those containers by the hundreds or thousands across the ocean? I just can't imagine those engines are going to function well in blood like they do in salt water. Economically, I think commerce and shipping is going to come to a halt as those ships will be unable to traverse the oceans, and the result is going to be global financial ruin. This is the second vial out of seven that's coming. And already, most of the world is suffering with an unimaginable sore on their body that can't be cured. And now, all of the salt water in the world has been turned to blood. Well, let's, let's keep reading here. One by one, God's going to tear down these things that people take for granted. Our health, food, food. Our ability to make money, all of these things. Now the oceans are really nothing but seas of death. Plagues in the center, plagues in the sea. And then verses 4 through 7 plagues in the streams. Look what it says in verse 4. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains and wa- of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, "Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus: for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy." And I heard another uh, out, uh, heard another out of the altar say, "Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments." The third bowl strikes. Here it comes. All the salt water is blood, and now all of the fresh water is turned to blood. Again, in Revelation chapter 8, one-third of the fresh water was contaminated. It was poisoned. But here, it's the whole world. Now, all of the salt water in the world is blood. All of the fresh water in the world has been turned to blood. I want you to note what that first angel says For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Here's my observation on that. The world by this time will have become so bloodthirsty in their slaughter of the tribulation saints. So God responds to their thirst for blood by literally giving them blood to drink. He's taken away all their water. What are you going to drink? The cows aren't drinking the cows aren't, aren't drinking water to produce milk. They can't make my Dr. Pepper zero because they don't have any water to start with. What's left to drink in the world? The salt water's gone. Now the fresh water's gone. Here's another plague that reminds us of the plagues of Egypt. In, in Exodus chapter 7, verses 20 through 24, the fresh waters in Egypt are turned to blood. Again, I want to remind you, that was local. This is global. Every freshwater source in the world is turned to blood. Every stream, river, lake, well, every municipal uh, source of water, all of them are taken away. You know, physically, you and I, and I know we can't believe this, especially as Americans, you and I can go for quite a long time without food. In fact, we can go weeks without food. But we can't go that long without water. You will thirst to death much quicker than you'll starve to death. All the water in the world has been turned to blood. This judgment has four verses dedicated to it. The first two only, the first only had one verse. Verse one tells us about, or verse two rather, tells us about the sore. Verse three tells us about the salt water being turned to blood. But when the fresh waters turn to blood, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Still, the plague only gets one verse. But then there are verses, well, there are three verses of angelic praise for what's happening on the planet. that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Two different angels here offering praise on this. In verses 4 and 5, the angel says that the world is merely reaping what it has sown. Thou art righteous, O Lord. Praise in verse number, or verse number 4, rather. The third, the, the third angel pours out his, pours out his uh, vial. The fresh waters become blood. Verse 5, they praise the Lord. This angel praises the Lord. And verse number 6 tells you why he's praising the Lord. Verse 6 is, they are reaping what they have sown. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says, you're familiar with these verses, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Everlasting. May I just pause here and say this. If you'll read Galatians chapter 6, the connotation, the context of that verse, this sowing and reaping, is a positive connotation. The main point being made in this passage is the end of verse 8. If you'll sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. The context of that is, is very positive. But sowing and reaping is a two-edged sword. I and mean, if I want corn, I sow corn. If I want apples, I sow apples. And it works out great. But if I'm going to sow sin and I'm going to sow rebellion and I'm going to sow rejection, then I'm going to reap those consequences as well. And this angel in Revelation 16 is merely pointing out the fact that the earth is now reaping the harvest of all of these thousands of years of seeds that they have sown of rebellion and rejection against God. The world... has busied itself murdering God's people and murdering God's preachers, and so they're given blood to drink. That's what that angel is saying. You're bloodthirsty? Then here you go. And then in verse 7, a second angel declares the righteous nature of not only these judgments but all of God's judgments. He says in verse 7, this other out of the altar says, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. If you have a reference Bible, verse number 7 probably has Psalm 19 and verse number 9 listed next to it because he's quoting, or, or uh, verse number 7, he's quoting Psalm 19, 7. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I thank God. Look, I, Christians in here today, I thank God that when this terrible day comes, we are going to be at home in heaven. I am... I am beyond grateful that the terrible things we are studying in the book of Revelation is not for me. When we get to heaven, our minds are, are going to have been completely transformed. And the reason that this angel is praising God for his judgment is because he's seeing God's judgment the exact way that God does. And when you and I get to heaven, we will have a completely different perspective on these judgments. We'll see things from God's perspective. We will understand, which I don't think we do today. I don't think you and I understand today just how sinful sin is. I don't know if you and I fully comprehend what an affront Sin is to God today. And we know he doesn't like it. That's why, and we know there's a penalty for it. The wages of sin is death. And so we come to God. But I think when we are finally in the presence of his revealed holiness, I think it's going to dawn on us just how wicked our sin really was. So when we look at these judgments from heaven's perspective, I mean, down here when we're looking at this, we're like, these are terrible. But I think when we're in heaven and we're seeing God's judgment on sin, and these are terrible judgments on sin, they're terrible. When we see them, we will be seeing them from heaven's perspective and not ours. And we may say, when that angel says that in verse number 7, you and I may be right there and we may just say, Amen. He is absolutely right. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25 says that our great God can only do what is absolutely right. Abraham asked this question. Shall not the judge of of all the earth do right? When judgment comes, church, and this is terrible. I, I know this is terrible judgment coming. When judgment comes, we can rest assured that God will judge the right people in the right amount in the right way. We'll have heaven's perspective on this. You know what else I think? I think when you and I get to heaven, our, our perspective of God's mercy and grace, we sing amazing grace right now. I think when we get to heaven and we see the awfulness of sin in the presence of a holy God, I think our perspective of mercy and grace is going to explode. We are going to realize one day just how amazing God's grace is. We're going to realize one day just how long-suffering God has been. God, how did you, how did you tolerate this for thousands of years? And we'll, we'll confess again what a great God he is. There's plagues in the center. That's those sores. There's plagues in the sea; the, o- the oceans turn to blood. Plagues in the stream; the fresh water turns to blood. And the last thing in verses eight and nine, plagues in the sun. And don't ask me how this works. There's science beyond my understanding that's about to take place in verse number four, if it has, or verse number eight rather, if it hasn't already. But verse number eight says this. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. The hymn in the last phrase of verse 8 is referring to the sun. Power was given unto him. It's that grammatical tool of uh, personification, where inanimate objects are given—they're uh, given the sense that they act as a person. Powers given to the sun. The Bible says to scorch men with fire. This fourth plague impacts the sun, and that word "scorch." If you—if you do your word study on that word "scorch," it literally means to torture with heat. I don't like being sunburned. I get sunburned. Probably once or twice a year. Early on in the spring, I get sunburned, and then my, and then my skin does its thing, and I tan up. Some people just repeatedly get sunburned. I feel for you because I hate sunburns. My wife's always good about you. Really should put some suntan lotion. I'm like, ah, that'll be fine, and it's never just fine. I don't like sunburns at all. But on this, on this event, this is way beyond sunburn. This is beyond bad sunburn. That This is torturous heat. This universe is an amazing place. God created everything that is. He did that in six literal 24-hour days. And he set in motion an incredible functioning universe. When we start talking about the size of the universe, our minds at some point, and many of you are smarter than I am, but no matter how smart you are, At some point, you just run out of room as to how to comprehend the size of the universe. It is absolutely massive. And then if you go the other way from the telescope to the microscope and you start looking under the microscope, you're absolutely infatuated with the detailed organization that God created in every atom that was ever created. His universe is absolutely amazing. Let's just talk about for a minute this sun that the Bible mentions, 93 million miles from our planet. I can't comprehend that. I just, you know, 93 million miles, you're talking into the wind. I can't imagine 93 million miles. But our earth sits here, and she's rotating on her axis, and she's orbiting around this sun exactly where we need to be in order for you and I not to cook and not to freeze that's an amazing thing and it's been doing it it's been doing it pretty well since it was created not too hot not too cold kind of like goldilocks porridge that she settled on right not too hot not too cold just right we can survive on this planet we can survive in hot places we can survive in cold places God put us exactly where we needed to be. <clears throat> Someone said that we can put 1.3 million Earths in the space that the sun takes up. 1.3 million of our planets would fill up the same cubic, uh, the same cubic footage of what the sun occupies. The sun is huge. But the thing that strikes us about the sun is not its size. It's its, it's, its heat. I didn't know this. Maybe you did the sun is 10,000 degrees on its surface, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on its surface. I, I knew that part. At its core, and how in the world they would know this, but somebody smarter than me said that at its core, the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Now, between the core and the surface of the sun, obviously, we've lost some potency. And thank the Lord, between the surface of the sun and the surface of the earth, we've been protected a little bit, too we complain around here if it gets 90 degrees and 90% humidity we think Jesus is coming back right now this is the tribulation period for us 10,000 degrees on its surface and yet earth is inhabitable that's because god in his wisdom he put a magnetosphere around our earth and it filters out much of the it filters out much of the sun's radiation and it allows just enough heat and just enough light onto our planet for Earth to function like it does. Some places on Earth can't grow, can't grow things. It's too cold or too hot. Most of the Earth is inhabitable, and we're glad for it. But during this particular plague, God does one of two things. He either increases the temperature of the sun or he reduces the effectiveness of that magnetosphere Because the earth gets much hotter than it does to the point where it says that the people on earth are scorched. And that scorching means to be tortured by heat. It's going to be terribly hot. Agonizingly hot. It's not just the exposure to the sun, it's the temperature of the earth. It's going to be terrible. And yet here is another of mankind's sureties taken away. Do you take your health for granted? I know I do. I know I do. Do you take your food supply for granted? I guarantee you I do. Those things are taken away here. But here's another one that's taken away. Because for thousands of years since creation, the sun has come up every morning to provide life-giving, consistent dependable heat and light. Yet one day, people are going to awaken to a hostile sun that will torture them with flaming heat scorching their bodies. And it's the result of God's work, and you're not going to be able to stop it, nor would I. It's the fourth plague. I don't know how hot it's going to be on the planet. I don't know the depth of a person's agony in that burning, that scorching. I don't know. But I know this, even that will, compa- that will pale in comparison to hell's fire. It won't be that hot. These four plagues that are coming to the planet, there's seven of them coming. We've only got through four of them. They're going to be terrible. There, there's no way for me this morning to make this a joyous sermon other than to say, if you know Jesus, you don't have to experience any of those things. You won't. That's the most joyful part of this. But the rest of it is this. This is coming to planet Earth. And every one of these plagues this morning, these judgments that we're talking about, they're not local like like, uh, Egypt's plagues. They are global in their impact. All of the fresh water. All of the salt water. Every nation and tongue and tribe that has accepted the Antichrist and his mark will know that sore. And all of them will be under the the impact of this scorching heat. There's no way to dress that up. Other than to say, you can escape it. You can escape it. You don't have to know it. I am struck. I, and, and I've, I've read... I read a lot on on those plagues this week. I'm struck because this week, and I'm just confessing this to you, they're worse than I thought they would be. When you get into, okay, then what what does that look like if that happens? If all the water on the planet, you have to let your mind go. If all the water on the planet turns to blood, what is that going to do to the inhabitants? If the sun's heat is increased or the magnetosphere is decreased, and that the earth's temperature increases like that, and that scorching heat comes, then what is that going to do to people? I'm struck by the awful, awfulness of those things. As a believer, I understand this is God's judgment, but this is a hard passage of Scripture to swallow, especially if you have someone that you know and love that are unsaved, and you realize that events leading to this could happen anytime if Jesus raptures his church. That's a hard thing to swallow. But can I give you what I think is the most striking part of these nine verses? It's the end of verse number nine. What is most striking in these verses is that those on earth that suffer these things understand what is happening. They will know that it is God who sent these plagues And they're going to continue to shake their fist in his face and blaspheme. Verse 9, blaspheme his name. And it says, which hath power over these plagues. They know who's sending them. And yet the Bible says they're blaspheming his name. That word blaspheme means to revile, to attack God's name. They are blaming God for their suffering. They don't account at all for their sinful ways. They just blame God. This is God doing this to us. How could God do this to us? He is so wicked, and they're going to attack his name. They will blaspheme his name. You know the problem with verse number 9 is? That's not new. That's been going on since Genesis 3, when God confronted Adam about his sin, and Adam said what? This woman that thou gavest to me, she led me astray. God, really, I have to put this at your feet, Adam said. My sin is really your fault. You gave me Eve. Ever since man sinned, he's been saying this is all God's problem. This is God's fault. God has done this to me. And we have picked up that mantle and we've run with it. You have people that are 30 and 40 and 50 years old blaming their parents for the life choices they made. You have the homosexual crowd today saying, well, this is just the way God created me. It's no different than what is taking place in Revelation 16, 9. God did this. God caused all of these problems. Let me say this to you. This is not God's problem. This is not God's fault. The end of verse number 9 makes this very clear. They blaspheme his name. The Bible says, what's the real problem? The last phrase of verse number 9. And they repented not to give him glory. The problem here is not God's judgment. The problem is they're suffering this because they repented not. They didn't turn away from their sins. They should have turned from their sin. They didn't, so now they pay the price. Galatians 6, it's reaping and sowing. What has been sown is now being reaped. There is no one left to blame. May I say this to you? God doesn't send one person from this planet to hell. You know what sends man to hell? And women, our sin and our guilt. In fact, I'd say this. God's done everything he possibly can do to keep you and I from going to hell. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoso believeth in him. You don't have to go out and save the world. You don't have to go out and give away all of your possessions. You don't go out and have to be baptized. You don't have to go out and suffer persecution All you have to do is believe in his son for forgiveness and repent of your sins. And the Bible says he'll be saved. God has done all he can do to keep people from this judgment and ultimately to keep people out of hell. Do you know this? Do you know that the people in hell do not blame God for being in hell? They don't. They know the truth. You want an interesting observation? You remember the story in Luke, I think, it's, I think it's Luke's gospel, Luke 16. Is that where it is about uh, the rich man and Lazarus? You know the interesting thing about that rich man in hell? He's suffering terribly, isn't he? Do you know he never asks to get out of hell? He knows he's got his just reward. He just asks for a drop of water. He never asks to be relieved. The people in hell are not blaming God because they're in hell now. They know. Their sin has put them there. God doesn't send people hell. He does what he can to keep people from it. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm saying this. God sent his son to the world to die to pay for your sins. All you have to do is come to Christ, ask him to forgive you, and believe in faith that he does what he says. And you know why you can believe that? Because God can't lie. He said in his word, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be, not could be. It'll happen. You can count on it. There are certain men and women I know. If they give me their word, I pretty much know that's going to happen. But that's nothing compared to the veracity of God. God is absolutely reliable. And he says, if you'll call on my son, if you'll believe on my son, Not believe in Jesus. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. The devil does that. Believe on him means there's a dependence on his work. His work on the cross. If you don't know Christ, come to Christ and be saved. Why would you toy around with the possibility of facing this judgment? And if you are saved this morning, number one, you ought to praise him for delivering your soul from this. Number two... It ought to make you a wonderful witness for Christ. It's a great thing that God has done for me in saving me. It's a great thing God has done for you. He's forgiven your sins. He's promised you eternal life. He gives you the Holy Spirit to help you make it through this world. That's a wonderful thing that he's done. But he's also delivered your soul from hell and given you the opportunity to tell other people how to miss that hell as well. I, I would if I were you. Not saved this morning, I'd get saved. Saved this morning, I would beg God to make me a better witness than I am today. The, the closer we get to Christ coming, the more obvious and intentional our our witness ought to be. I'm all for lifestyle evangelism. Look, I, I believe you ought to go. I I believe you ought to go to your job and look like a Christian and act like a Christian. I'm all for lifestyle evangelism. You and I ought to look and sound and walk and talk like Jesus Christ. But that cannot replace me telling those that I know and who God brings across my path. That cannot replace me saying, look, there's there's a terrible day coming. You need to be saved if you're not. Live a lifestyle Lifestyle evangelism? Absolutely. But intentional evangelism. Tell people about Christ. Jesus spoke a whole lot more to his disciples, the first church. He spoke a whole lot more to his disciples about them going and telling than he did about showing. A lot of times we... You so say, I can't talk to people about that. I'm just going to live the Christian life. Live the Christian life. But if you can't, if you're uncomfortable talking, if you're not sure enough whether they're going to ask me a question I don't know, then do this. Carry some gospel tracts with you, let the track do the talking. But tell them about Christ because this book is absolutely true. And, and Revelation chapter 16 is going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, the rest of the book is, too. But what we're talking about this morning, and you say, oh, Pastor, I just don't believe it. Again, <clears throat> not being rude to you, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. What matters is, did God say it? And if he did, then believe it and act on it. Let's stand together with our heads bowed. Can we do that? Father, this is your word, and we can we confess again that we believe what you say. And you're telling us about terrible judgment coming to this planet. We see the beginnings of that judgment even now. Lord, we see the the withdrawing of your hand of protection in so many areas that we've never seen before. We see the withdrawing of your hand of blessing on our nation. And, Lord, it is justly deserved here. We are worthy of your judgment, just just like Revelation 16 says. But, Lord, we pray that you would continue to extend your grace to us. And help us to understand the urgency of the gospel. I pray, Father, for those that might be here today or listening to us online that are not saved. And above everything else we might ask you to do today, God, we ask you to save them. Help them to come to Christ today for forgiveness of their sins. Help them to humble themselves and do that. I pray for the Christian today who might be here today. And, Lord, they're not the witness that they should be. People around them are going to hell, and they know it. And, Lord, they're not telling them about Christ. I pray that you would increase their boldness, increase their knowledge of your word and their confidence, Lord, if nothing else, and the ability just to tell how they got saved so that other people can know how they too might be saved. Jesus, we thank you for coming and paying for sin that we could never pay for ourselves, Thank you for being the sacrifice for our sin and giving us your righteousness. And I pray that we would always be grateful for this great salvation we have. I pray, Lord, that you would do your work in the hearts of those people here that need to have work done in it. Whatever that might be, I pray, Lord, that they would cooperate with your Holy Spirit this morning. I pray in your name. Amen. Would you hold